evening, and thank you for joining us. I'm Ed Hand, your host for tonight's Unpublished TV panel discussion. Our topic tonight is the demand for rapid, effective COVID testing in Canada. However you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or in our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote. And then email your MP to tell them why. Our question this week, do you think an effective and accurate rapid COVID test will be available in Canada by the end of 2020? That was a question we asked you. 43.8% said yes, 56.2% said no. And unpublished.vote, you'll find our podcast on this issue as well as articles, opinion pieces, research, and on the various views on when we will get a rapid, accurate COVID test in Canada. So let's get started. Dr. Stephen Newmaster is a genomics professor at the University of Guelph. Christine Nielsen is the CEO of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science. And Jason Kinderchuk is an assistant professor, Canada Research Chair, Department of Medical and Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. And I thank uh, the three of you for joining us this evening. And when I take a look at our unpublished dot vote questions, Stephen, it, it looks pretty, pretty split to me, 43 to, to 56. Is that about the, the mindset of Canadians right now? Um, not sure. Um, what I would say is probably I needed to find what is a a point of care on-site test look like. What does that timing look like? Is that a two-minute test, a five-minute test, or a 90-minute test? Or are we talking a couple days. Um, so I think we need to really define what that is. Right. Uh, Jason, you know, from, from your perspective, what do, you, what do you think in terms of the Canadian mindset on, on a COVID test right now? Well, I think part of it has to come back to this idea that, that everybody's tired. I mean, it, it's been it's been a long year when we look back at 2020 in general. Uh, in particular, you know, we look at a place like Manitoba where we have low case counts all the way through spring, through summertime, we were basically at, at baseline, and then things have gotten hot the last you know month and a half. So I think people are kind of at that point where you know they're re reaching their threshold, and now you know the certainty I think that they have that you know that we were going to get through this quickly. Now maybe is becoming a, a little bit more questioning in their mind. So I think that a lot of that is playing into it, and obviously the the sheer amount of misinformation uh, and debate that we're seeing in in social media sphere on a daily basis. Um, is really, I think, clouding a lot of the progress that has been made. That's that's a very good point. And Christine, messaging is 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 a big issue, whether it's federal or provincial. And every time you turn around, the message changes. How how can Canadians actually keep up to up to date on what's going on here? I feel like even scientists are having trouble keeping up to date. You <laughs> yeah. know, there's tens of thousands of new studies coming out. And even on the issue of point of care or rapid testing, you've got what the companies say, you've got what the scientists are able to replicate and or prove or disprove. And I think that's where some of the challenge is. And I think, you know, asking the simple question, are we going to have rapid testing? Six months ago, we asked, are we going to have a vaccine? So we've dialed back that expectation now that the vaccine likely isn't going to be here by Christmas, but could we have a more rapid effective test on the market? And I feel like we will have something. Um, we currently have things in validation right now. There's over 20 right now on Health Canada's website waiting for approval, coming from everywhere in the world. They're coming from Germany, they're coming from a couple from Canada, one from the United States, some from China, some from Korea. So scientists have been looking for this, uh, for rapid testing and possibly even at-home testing for a really long time, but I don't feel like we're, we're there yet. So I'm 
like on the skeptical side of the public. All right. Now, uh, Stephen, what's been keeping Canada behind other countries when it comes to rapid testing? We heard about all those other countries that have all these rapid tests. I think Canada's being really careful, careful to make sure we have a validated test. And we also need to answer the question, what kind of testing do we want to do rapidly? Because there's different perspectives. There's antibody tests, there's antigen tests, there's testing for the virus genomics using RNA. So there are different perspectives, different questions. They're fit for purpose and different uses in society. And every one of those tests, which are different, need to be validated to know they really work. I think that's something we didn't realize. You said there's like three, there's a number of different uh, applications for them. Yeah, that's correct. And and I think just the common people on the street don't realize this, that the tests take different perspectives on on the virus in the body, what's going on, and the virus in the environment. Jason, why would you have to look at so many different different angles to just to, to, to find where the virus is? Well, there's a few aspects to this, right? And I think the thing that we need to remember is really 10 months ago was when we first saw SARS coronavirus 2, uh, you know, with the, the initial case identification uh, in Wuhan. So um, really in that 10-month period, I, I keep saying we've learned about a decade's worth of material, but we're probably, you know, a decade or so behind in fully understanding what this virus is. So the problem is we, we don't have a blueprint or an algorithm where we say it's this virus or is this brand new virus that kind of looks like this, kind of maybe behaves like this, what should we do for testing? Um, we have to basically figure out well, how the virus is behaving and what the clinical picture looks like, and then try to understand which tests are gonna give us the most accurate information based on the patient. All of this takes a, a really exceedingly uh, large amount of time, and, and it's very complex. Um, trying to equate whether or not you know, a, a PCR test is actually as, as accurate as being able to grow the virus or, or look at, at the, the actual viral antigen itself. Um, we don't necessarily know what those correlates are yet. And I think we're, we're moving closer to what that is, um, but it, it does take a lot of time in, in the midst of a, a real-time pandemic. So I think we're, we're making a lot of progress, but it, but it certainly is, is not going to be something that is going to be figured out within the next few weeks. Yeah, Christine, you represent the lab uh, lab technicians and the medical professionals that, that are in there, and we know they're overwhelmed with processing samples. What would a simple home-based test, maybe a saliva test, do to the impact on your members? Well, p- part of the challenge is um, I think my members would be worried that we would be able to know that the device is at, close to as reliable as PCR. So my members would feel a little bit more comfortable knowing that the data is substantially similar compared to what they're pulling off their PCR equipment that takes four or five hours to produce. But I think the, the biggest challenge with anything like an at-home test is how do we do contact tracing? So some, sometimes one of the things we're hearing about these rapid tests is maybe they could be used in an airport. Um, and the problem with some of the rapid tests right now is everyone says they are not for clinical diagnosis. And I fear that that is exactly what people are trying to do with it. Therefore, research purposes only. And some of the reliability of the information is with people who are very clearly positive COVID patients, not asymptomatic and not people who've had an exposure, but it's just not showing. So I think I think relief would be nice. You know, Ontario is setting a target of 100,000 tests a day. 
like, where do you put a hundred thousand tests in your lab? Like it's mind boggling. You know, we've got labs in Toronto producing 13,000 a day, like they're operating in hives. So relief needs to come. You know, we have some members that haven't had a day off since March 11th. You know, that's really hard for mental health, for well-being, for, you know, just, just put your pants on and going to work every day and they do you know they put their lab mm-hmm. coat on and they know behind every specimen is a patient or somebody who needs to know what what in my life is going to change based on this result do i need to stay home can i go to work what about my children you know so i feel like lab professionals are very optimistic about the fact that it's coming but we know they're not there yet so they can use the relief though any day mm-hmm. now i would i can imagine and, and and just personally my my wife just went and got a covid test t- today and she will have the results by tomorrow, which you know, you know, I had one back in August, and it was it was a couple of days. You still had to wait. So you, it seems the time crunch is starting to to, to alleviate now. Yes. Definitely. And I think too, it depends on where you are. There's more, there's more facilities coming on for testing and there's more methodologies being used. Um, it, one of the best things about the scientific community around the world is that it's been working on finding things can, that can detect smaller levels of virus with less invasive techniques like the nasopharyngeal swab, the tickling of the brain um, doesn't feel awesome. Saliva is a much better um, specimen to collect. Urine is even easier, right? So, um, you know, these are things that the scientists have been looking for since day one. And and I'm confident when you're on Health Canada's website, there's probably 50 to 100 tests pending. And those are for in-lab use too, and 20 for point of care. So relief is coming, um, but Mm -hmm. but the scientific community needs to make sure it's doing its job well enough. Stephen, we, we've talked a bit about messaging uh, for testing. And, and from your perspective, how well is it being done or has it improved since the beginning of this? Well, messaging in the media can be very confusing. And I'm surprised by some of the statements that I hear in the media. They're not accurate. And we see this all the time when you have complex issues that are either technical or based on science. And it's really hard to get that message out. It's hard as a communicator, as a professor, to be able to teach the students and be able to get that message clearly to them. So for the media, it's even going to be a tougher job. I think having professionals speaking to it like we are on the panel is a really good way to be able to understand um, the topic from many, many perspectives, Mm -hmm. from the virus, from the virologist, from testing in the labs, from, from the technical people that make the test. Now, uh, Jason, when uh, we'll talk about that airport testing, that pilot project that's uh, going to start next week in, in Alberta, and it, what it will do uh, for international travelers coming in, if they, they they take this test, they won't have to quarantine for 14 days. Uh, is this something the science community is quite happy about? You know, I think, again, we're, we're a little bit torn on, on what we uh, what we think about this. So, obviously, um, we, we can't keep borders shut down forever. There's obviously a need to increase travel and, and trade, uh, you know, probably pretty soon uh, based on, uh, on what we're seeing economically. The difficulty is, again, with, with this virus, the way that it transmits, uh, you know, it has actually been shown to be through, you know, pre-symptomatic transmission or asymptomatic trans. Uh, transmission before somebody shows symptoms. So the the question that we get into is this idea of if you test somebody and they're negative, are they truly negative? It, it, and obviously it's just a static moment in time um, that the virus is not uh, either there or at a high enough concentration to be uh, to be you know shown to be uh, positive. So what happens in the next day or a couple of days afterwards? And I think that's where my real concern lies is that it's not just that initial test. 
It's what is the process afterwards, and as well, how do we start to differentiate the symptoms uh, that that people need to be wary of and monitoring and go back to this idea of contact tracing. Um, It's it's an extremely complex situation and a lot of different uh, moving parts all at the same time. Stephen, what do you think about the the airport pilot project? I'm concerned that technology isn't properly validated yet, so I'm not familiar with what they're using. I've seen um, certain comments being made in the media that it's perhaps biosensors. If it was a biosensor, I would be worried because viral load needs to be pretty high. So what we just heard from Jason, it's low, and a person's contagious. It may not be picking it up. The biosensors haven't been validated technically, so we have issues of specificity and sensitivity, repeatability, reproducibility. These are hundreds of experiments that haven't been published and run yet. Um, And lastly, if it's an instrument that's based on lamp or isothermal amplification um, that we've heard about before in the media, so these quick tests that happen in 15 or 20 minutes that are supposed to be a a genetic-based test, they have low sensitivity and they need to be followed up with a confirmatory PCR test. So you should have an instrument that runs both and they're available. Um, just running one and then making a decision on it I, worries me. Uh, that's problematic. Uh, Christine, I, I wonder if maybe we're just sort of reaching or grasping at straws a little bit because we want to get the economy going again. We want to get, you know, open up, move around and that kind of, But, you know, obviously we're still, we're in the second wave. We had a thousand in Ontario today. A thousand, I know. Um, And one of the challenge too, um, you know, scientists need to see the numbers and we need to see the numbers that are reproducible over time. And some of the devices that are in use today in the United States are based on a hundred specimens. That's never going to be enough for most scientists to feel comfortable. They need to be absolutely reproducible under a number of conditions. And the very device that they're using at the White House has a 20% fail rate on positives. So that means 20% of those people, one in five, is shedding the virus and don't even know they have it. So that's the worry that we all have about what we call a false negative. I'll take a false positive any day. A false positive means you stay at home. It means you confine yourself from the public and you, you wait your 14 days. That's a little bit less risky for public health than having false negatives. Yeah, just the false negative is just more of an inconvenience. But I guess in the grand scheme of things, you take your lumps, right? I was kind of well, curious. Exactly. Well, what what causes the false negative, the false the false positive, Jason? So a part of this goes back to the sensitivity of the assay, right? So when we look at at, at false positives or false negatives, um, the issue that we always have with with PCRs is the fact that um, you know you get towards a, a level of detection, and once you get down to that level of detection, what can happen is you start basically getting equivalency of either false positives or, or false negatives. So what can happen is that. Your, your basically your accuracy is completely lost at that level. And we saw some of this uh, you know, very early on when there was discussion about the South Korea cases and whether or not we were seeing people that were being reinfected. Now, ultimately, we found out that people in very, very um, specialized cases can be reinfected. But what we also found was that people over time, as they were recovering, once basically their viral loads hit a certain baseline, if you continue to test, sometimes it might be positive, other times it might be negative. There was no infectious virus there, but that was right down at that threshold. So for the, the issue is, is that the technology at the end of the day is going to have a, a specific limit um, that unfortunately is, you know, was kind of ingrained in stone for those particular uh, methods. Over time, they will develop, they will become more optimized. But in, you know, in the throngs of, uh, of a pandemic, um, there is going to be some difficulty with trying to expedite this 
uh, and, and still be accurate and sensitive. You know, Stephen, I know you're not, uh, or you had some reservations regarding the pilot project, but when I look at Toronto as a hotspot and Peel region as a hotspot, and uh, from an interview I did about a week ago, regarding the, that being a hotspot, it was because of the international travel coming into Toronto, in, well, a lot of those folks from Peel region. Would that not be a better place to be trying this out? I think there would be a number of areas that you could use these types of tools as a screening mechanism. Um, and we need to keep in mind that's a screening mechanism of which then you take clinical decisions after that. So if you have that in many places, then you would have more you would have more indicators that are coming in of where the virus might be and where infection might spread. Uh, Christine, when we look at uh, testing samples, obviously what you said 100,000 tests that uh, Ontario wants to do. Do we have the, the you know, the, the material, I don't know what exactly what it's called, that makes up uh, the, these, these tests and do you have enough of it to, to keep going? Or, you know, is sure, that something? Sure. To- so, so the physical devices, correct, and yeah. reagents and supplies. Reagents. Um, in some cases, you know, if, if it's um, a point of care where you have to load it onto a, a piece of equipment that it then takes 15 minutes to do a sample, all of those need to be brought in. And there is a global competition happening right now. I will say, though, one of the things we've seen, though, is uh, nations as well as provinces and people and vendors mobilizing to make these things happen. Um, But it doesn't mean that we don't face a potential shortage for sure. And 100,000 of anything is a lot. Yeah, I know. And and, like in terms of that material, is that stuff you can get or source in Canada or is that something you've got to get around the world? That's a little bit of the controversy right now. So mm-hmm. I would I would estimate that for lab supplies, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong for my other panelists, um, probably at least 90% of materials do not are not produced within Canada. That's things like gloves, that's pipettes, it's actual physical analyzers that are the size of a small Toyota, you know, and mm-hmm. there's small things like balances. Not a lot of that's produced in Canada. I would say because of the cost of labor, you know, one of the things um, the scientific community and the testing community have been driven by governments for years to save, 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 more testing, do it cheaper. Um, and that is not anything that's changed, but you may see a, ch- a shift or a willingness to be a little bit more self-sufficient now um, as a result of the global pandemic, because we've seen a supply chain problem. All right. Now, uh, we've got a question coming in on Facebook right now from one of our viewers on Facebook Live. We hear a lot about false negatives. And Stephen, how accurate do we think the rapid testing is right now? Depends on the type of tests that you're taking. One thing that you want to have in your test are positive and negative controls so that we can understand the sensitivity of the test um, and the danger of having a, a false test come in. And some of the tests that the assay, the way it's actually designed, they don't have that capability. And that's being a problem. And I've been pretty critical of it, looking at it. We had that early on in the year when the first instruments were passed and we looked at just the design of the test and they didn't have proper negative controls in that test when you run it. Mm-hmm. And that's just a design problem. So I think we need to be really, and that's one of the things Health Canada is being really careful about and public health is to make sure these assays are actually designed properly. I'm wondering, how do you design something, or at least design a test properly? We have we have a scientific validation method to go through this. Oh. Um, and that validation method looks at specificity, sensitivity, the design of the assay, 
repeatability. So you not only repeat it in different places with different users, but in different ring studies with different labs. And we just haven't had time to do this because the virus was only here less than a year ago. And it takes years to do this. Yeah. I, I would also add in sure. that um, in the early days of, of just getting testing methodologies up in Canada in, in, in February and March, it was very hard to get your hands on a COVID positive sample. They yeah. had to be brought in from Wuhan or from Germany. They had to be brought in. And this is before we've hit our, is it coming to Canada? We're not really sure. You know, public health is trying to validate. Um, they're trying to validate saliva. They're trying to validate uh, nasopharyngeal swabs. They're trying to see if they can recover it, but they don't actually have any physical material. And, you know, just like my colleague said, we have to know that it's doing its job before it's approved for use, or we're just going on a wing and a prayer. Well, and I think that's, you know, if, if I can jump in, I mean, I think it's one of the things that, that people tend to uh, maybe overlook is the fact that, again, you know, we're dealing with a pandemic for a new virus that we just saw 10 months ago. Um, it's it's an astounding, astounding thing for us to be able to be at this point where we're actually, you know, pretty much, you know, almost all the way through some of the phase three trials for uh, for different vaccine candidates, not just a even a single candidate. Um, so we've made some monumental strides, but it's certainly, you know, it's not something that's really easy where, you know, in a few weeks you have a test that's up and going, everybody's validated across the globe and, and you're golden and ready to go. Um, this does take a lot of time and, and it certainly wasn't for a lack of effort by, by the global research community. I mean, reagents were, were shared and protocols have been shared since the start of this. It is just unfortunately the, the nature of the beast with science is that it does not look at 24 seven uh, time periods and nor does it care how quickly a virus is transmitting. Um, you have to go through and optimize everything uh, at basically at your speed. So it's, it's difficult to say the least. You're watching Unpublished TV and uh, joining us this evening, Christy Nielsen, CEO of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science. Jason Kindrachuk is assistant professor at the University of Manitoba. And Stephen Newmaster is a genome professor at the University of Guelph. As we talk about the uh, the rapid COVID testing and how, how how bad it's needed. Now, let's go back to the airline thing for a second. And we talked about, uh, Steve, you're a little cons- you're, you're on the fence about the, the pilot project. I, I saw a, a tweet earlier today from epidemiologist Kevin Wilson, and he was pointing out that uh, both the Canadian North and the Atlantic bubble should be reevaluating exemption for travelers right now. Why is that? Steve? Oh, waiting for me. Okay. <laughs> I would think it, I'm not a virologist, so I'm okay. a, I'm a genomist diagnostic. So, you know, it might be a better question for Jason, but I would say you, these areas where the population hasn't infected, at levels uh, that are higher are the ones that are that are going to get infected. If people already have antibodies, they already have resistance and the virus is coming in, we're not gonna see as many cases. So they're vulnerable. And we've seen this in a number of rural communities before, particularly First Nation uh, communities or Aboriginal communities um, in different parts of the world, like down in the uh, Southwest of the US, for example. Yeah, and and I think part of that too, you know, in, in thinking back to the 2009 pandemic, um, you know, with, with the H1N1 uh, influenza virus, we know that that First Nations and Indigenous communities were hit uh, unbelievably hard by that virus. And, and ultimately, what we saw was that there was, you know, a lack of testing on top of all of the, uh, you know, the, the community vulnerabilities that added to that. 
Um, you know, the most of the northern communities have done, at least in the, here in the prairies, did quite well through the first wave of the pandemic. Um, the problem is, is that it isn't just one wave. And, and obviously, in places like Manitoba, we've seen a resurgence and, and a very pronounced resurgence. Um, so now this becomes a question of, are they actually, are those communities ready for a potential onslaught of cases? And what do they do when those cases start to transmit with a virus that transmits as readily as SARS coronavirus 2 does? So it, it is certainly a warning sign for us. Um, again, the communities have done amazingly well so far uh, with the protocols that they've had in place, but they certainly are uh, vulnerable. And we, we have to uh, be appreciative of the fact that these are communities um, that, that we need to be very protective of. All right. And uh, one other point to go with the, with the bubble that I was just reading uh, this afternoon. Apparently, Atlantic Canada wants to extend its bubble to a all-inclusive resort in Cuba. No problems there at all, eh? <laughs> it's it's certainly an interesting strategy, right? So who 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 knows? I, I'm just a civil virologist, so yeah, okay. you know, I, I get to sit on this side of the aisle. <laughs> all right, not a problem. Not a pro- Christine, uh, a question from YouTube for us, one of our YouTube viewers. What's the best way people can get accurate information about rapid testing? Oh, that's that's a hard one because it depends on who you listen to, right? You've got the vendors. So every one of those 21 people that are waiting with Health Canada to be released, they've all published material on what their recovery rates are, positivity, negativity. But one of the subtle things is, um, you know, who are these patients? Are these people who we know have confirmed cases of COVID and they're just running their, their devices through that population? Or are these the asymptomatic? Or are these people like less than seven days symptomatic? Those are all different data pools of information. So um, data can lie if you don't know what it's extracting, you know? Um, so I would say, um, you know, Google is your friend, but really to be careful where you're taking it from. Take it from your New England Journals of Medicine. I've seen some great resources coming out of MIT. Um, often a reporter will get a hold of a story and there's links embedded in the story about where the real data comes from. And what the public, what they really are looking for is that hundreds of people have been tested on a device, the same set of conditions. And then we know what the reliability is. Um, the U.S. government lowered its threshold for testing to only need to be 80% accurate, which that's missing one in five, you know, and mm-hmm. I would agree with my colleague earlier who said, you know, Health Canada is being very particular. They've expedited the approval processes, but the standards are not getting lighter just because we yeah. need it. Um, and that's one of the things I feel very grateful to live in a country like Canada, because I know that when I get that information that's coming out of a rapid test or an at-home test, if we get there or we approve vaccines, that they have put the public health first and the health of all of us. Uh, Steve, I wonder if politics is going to get into the way of this. Uh, you know, you said the one in five, if it's 80 percent accurate, Christine, then one in five are being missed. And, you know, we, we do have political leaders who are driving to get this antigen test on the market ASAP. Obviously, we're dealing with a pandemic, but you could also have a bigger health problem. Right, Stephen? Uh, you could. You know what I'm impressed with with Canada as well is that the politicians that I've been talking to and advising, they've been listening to their science teams and they haven't been ready just to approve things. We know this is true because it hasn't been in place. And they're also very cognizant that this may not be the last virus. We were caught by this virus coming in very quickly as a society without having infrastructure in place. And they want to make sure that whatever we do, we, we get the right test in place. We get the right infrastructure. So if we have more waves of a 
of a coronavirus that has evolved or a different pathogen will have this infrastructure in place to be able to test. Because a lot of these gadgets that we're working with and the technology can test multiple pathogens. Oh, really? So they'd be more and more of use than more one more than one thing then? That's correct. You have that instru- instrument in place and you really, we call them kits, but you, they are, they have the ability to go and test different, um, different organisms. So we would just design another one like we have designed for the Corona 2 virus. Well, and I think what, what needs to be remembered with this too, is that, you know, out of every pandemic and, and really every, you know, uh, public health um, you know, issue that, that we've seen or crisis that we've seen is there is ingenuity that, that is created out of this. And, and I think, you know, COVID-19 has been a fantastic example where you've seen scientists that are reaching across the aisles, across disciplines to come up with novel solutions, whether that's creating, uh, you know, mechanical ventilations that are on the fly, whether it's creating new diagnostics, whether it is rapidly expanding uh, vaccine platforms. You know, this really is going to set the precedent for for us moving forward, and it has to. Frankly, this will not be the last pandemic. So I think having us um, moving in that direction is is certainly quite enlightening for me. Um, we have to get through COVID-19 first, mm-hmm. um, but but there will be some light at the end of the tunnel once once we get through uh, through here. So I, I yeah, guess- so true. We we come together as communities, and I'm seeing that I'm seeing people reach out from different sectors out to science, like the mining sector, yeah. saying we need help. Our in- industry and manufacturing, we want our workers to be able to go back and forth to work, go into the U.S. do essential working, and come back and test them to know they're okay, or even understand how the infection moves. So they're reaching out to virologists and test labs, and um, and this is pretty amazing. This is what we do yeah. as humans. Well, folks, that was uh, a great information discussion regarding uh, rapid COVID testing, and uh, hopefully we'll see something uh, fairly soon, and uh, that testing capacity will come along. Uh, the one thing that we are I, it, that I still can't get a decent answer on is contact tracing, because you, you look out there, you hear very little about it. You hear that it's needed, but you don't see anybody out there doing it. Yeah, I, I think the you know, part of this is that a lot of this happens um, behind the scenes, and, and to be fair... The one thing we need to remember, too, is that, you know, moving across the country, uh, the pandemic is not necessarily hitting every region uh, mm-hmm. with an equivalency right now. So there certainly is contact tracing going on. The COVID alert app hopefully is going to change um, some of the dynamics of how quickly we're able to identify cases. Um, but uh, certainly, I, I think we do know that it is an area that we need to improve on again after we move through uh, COVID-19 and get past this. Great discussion. I want to thank Dr. Stephen Newmaster, genomics professor at the University of Guelph, Christine Nielsen, CEO of the Canadian Society for Medical Laboratory Science, and Jason Kindrachuk, assistant professor, Canada Research Chair, Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. Coming up next week, we'll be looking at why workers in long-term care have little to no whistleblower protection. It should be lively. Thank you for watching on Publish TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.